Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. One of the phrases that I, uh, I use, uh, yes, you know, on a basket, a big basket, important basket, came from the schoolyard. A friend of mine, I was always very shy, but a friend of mine, there's always a kid who's calling the play-by-play as you're playing like three-on-three. And someone would hit uh, a shot, and he'd go, yes. So I just happened to incorporate it in a game. It was a Knicks-Philadelphia game at Madison Square Garden. And I remember Dick Barnett, who was on the Knicks championship teams in the 70s, with this fallback baby jumper, was able to hit a, a corner shot kind of an angle which banked in and I said yes and it just happened to John I realized people were repeating it back to me players were too and every once in a while I, I started using it and it just happened to uh, to catch on ever since he was in the third grade Marv Albert knew he wanted to call games as a sportscaster Albert followed that passion to Syracuse University, where he learned the craft from one of the all-time greats, fellow Orange alumnus Marty Glickman. After a decorated sports broadcasting career that spanned 55 years and saw him call 13 NBA Finals, 8 Super Bowls, and 8 Stanley Cup Finals, Albert retired following the 2021 NBA Eastern Conference Finals. On the latest Cuse Conversation, the Hall of Fame broadcaster stops by to discuss his legendary career, the best broadcasting advice he ever received, and why calling the 1992 Dream Team's gold medal winning performance stands out among a litany of amazing sportscasting moments that he has witnessed. Marv, I think the first place I, I want to start is you've had, you enjoyed such a decorated sports broadcasting career. You know, you know the figures. It was 55 years. You covered so many different sports. You had eight Stanley Cup Finals, eight Super Bowls, and 13 NBA Finals. And you decided to call it a career this past spring after the Eastern Conference Finals for the NBA. First question, how has retirement been treating you so far? You know, uh, it's been great. Um, there will be a couple of other projects that uh, will be announced maybe within the next month or two. Um, I, I just felt, in terms of broadcasting games, uh, 50, 55 years uh, was certainly enough. But what I've been doing is uh, reading a lot, which I, which I always did, but did not have the time. Uh, I've been also working out you know, with a trainer, which is, you know, I probably feel like I'm in the best shape of my life right now. It, it's just been... I've also been Mr. TV binging. I could probably be a TV critic now. I think I've and I never had a chance to do that. You know, I'd watch the odd uh, show here and there that uh, you know I wanted to, but now uh, I find I'm looking for shows, uh, and, and I, for some reason, and of course I have titles. I love French detective shows and British detective shows. I even need the subtitles with uh, British if the you know if they have a real deep. Uh, British accent. So that, plus, you know, spending more time with uh, my wife, my family, and all that, uh, it, it's really uh, been quite quite enjoyable. Very different for me. I'm so used to traveling. I don't mind not traveling as much. Uh, I, I think doing games last year virtually may have turned me off a little bit, 
uh, and then finally when we went, uh, we were able, after getting you know tested every day, were able to go to the arena. And the first game I did was the All-Star game at, in Atlanta, and it was so great just to see live players, you know, some live fans, it was limited, we were up high, and then they gave word that we could sit courtside. And what a difference that made, you know, being able to, for the playoffs, uh, for myself and Reggie Miller, Chris Weber, you know, to be down uh, courtside, and, you know, we had some great games. So uh, I, I just felt, though, even after that, it, it, it was time. What was it like calling games during the pandemic? The NBA had such a great setup, you know, with with the bubble and that sport did such a great job of limiting cases when you saw other sports, you know, had some issues like Major League Baseball and the NFL. For you, Marv, what was it like to get to call the games, you know, during the pandemic? Well, Adam Silver, the commissioner, did a tremendous job. You know, I mean, he was right on it. I didn't take part in the bubble. I, I just didn't feel, uh, several of us did not. Reggie Miller did not. Uh, we just didn't feel confident, although as it turned out, they really did an excellent, excellent job. So I did not start calling the games, and the same for Reggie, uh, until we were in, uh, you know, a studio. I was in New York, uh, and uh, Reggie Miller was in Los Angeles. Uh, when Chris Webber was there, he was in Atlanta. And we would see each other on a Zoom screen. My statistician was on a Zoom screen, and he would hold up uh, information for me. Uh, and basically, uh, you know, we were able to hear the producer director. They were uh, in the studio at Turner in Atlanta, and, uh, you know, they could see us. Uh, and... It was sort of fake crowd noise being piped in. It, it was very artificial, you know, and <laughs> it, it was it was tough for all of us to do. It wasn't quite like being at the arena for me. It was it was kind of strange because as a kid I started doing play by play uh, by turning down the sound of the television and doing the games into my tape recorder, and I also had a uh, a crowd record which is very similar to the, the virtual calls we were making uh, during the course of the NBA this past year. And my brothers, who were both sports, local sports announcers, they're, they're retired now, uh, both NBA announcers, uh, they would do the same thing. In fact, we even broadcast, we would play a lot of ping pong in our basement, and uh, my brothers, Al and Steve, would switch off. Uh, if they were playing, I would do the play-by-play of a ping pong, which you can imagine how that would sound. Uh, Or uh, I I would be playing Steve, and Al did it, and vice versa, all around. Or or Al would be throwing a racket when he was having a tough time, throw it up against the wall, which was very sad. But uh, that was also good for in terms of the uh, quickness in making the call, I must say. Although it's funny because in doing the Olympics, the first thing that I would go to would be the ping pong. And no one plays ping pong like the champion were in the Olympics. You know, it's amazing to see. Uh, but it's not a game, it's, it's not a game to, you know, to call on radio uh, because uh, it's just a test of how fast you can talk. It's a good drill. That was it. it, it of course, on TV it's different because 
you can make observations. You know, we, we would try to call every play, you know, which is impossible and, and basically stupid, you know. But, um, <laughs> uh, you uh, yeah, Alan Steve ended up, you know, uh, with the Nets in the NBA and ABA and uh, the Denver Nuggets and uh, Steve's last job was with the Phoenix Suns. So uh, I, I think it was the ping pong that did it for both of them. There's a lot of the stories that are similar to yours in that you grow up and you just know that you want to be involved in, in sports casting. What was that moment for you that you realized you were good at it and that you really wanted to make a career out of this? Now, the crazy thing was uh, I knew in the third grade, I remember our uh, teacher, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, uh, Mrs. Lepowski asked us to write an essay on what we'd want to do when we grow up. And I said, sportscaster, you know, uh, that was, there was no question in my mind or writer. I was interested in, in writing too, but sportscaster was, uh, all, what I wanted to do all, all my life. And, you know, I was very fortunate, uh, to be able to follow through on it by either, you know, continuing to uh, do games on, uh, on my tape recorder, or uh, I would take the recorder to basketball games uh, in high school and would announce the games. Uh, you know, I'd be given a seat all the way upstairs on a perch. Um, and then when I was in high school, I was very fortunate to meet Marty Glickman, who was then doing the uh, high school game of the week in, in New York City, which was a very popular uh, and, and Marty, as as you know, was a great athlete at Syracuse, an Olympian, uh, terrific football player, and became a sports announcer. He was probably the first athlete to be a play by successful play by play announcer. And I ended up uh, the football coach uh, recommended to Marty who was looking for someone who would do research for the high school game of the week, and he recommended me, and I would go out to the, to the various high schools, be at Long Island, Westchester, New York City, and uh, would go to the practice and get information on all the players and, you know, make up his charts for him and uh, got to know him quite well. I mean, he was just unbelievable with me. He saw my desire to be a sportscaster, and he ended up, uh, having me do stuff that I, I wouldn't dream of being able to do. In fact, uh, I did keep statistics for him when he was doing Nick games on the radio in New York. He was also doing Giants football, so I would be his spotter. And then uh, I, in my final year of college, I went to Syracuse three years and at NYU in my f uh, fourth year. Because uh, Marty had offered me a job as his backup announcer. He, he was listening to my tapes over the years and also uh, writing his uh, daily sports shows at WCBS Radio in New York. And I got my break that way because he had conflicts and I was able to do Nick games on the radio at a very, uh, a very young age, which was an you know, unbelievable break for me. And, you know, we stayed very close over the years, and he would always he, – he listened to my games and would give me advice. And uh, he, he was – he did this with a, not only me. I mean, he was very 
uh, helpful to a lot of young sportscasters, but uh, we were very close, and that that really gave me uh, a, a big boost. But when I was at Syracuse also, at Syracuse University, one of, aside from uh, the joy of the journalism classes and uh, WAER and, you know, be able, being able to do work on the school station, uh, the opportunity in the city for some of the young students who were interested in broadcasting was really quite good for several of us. So I ended up first doing classical music at WFBL. Uh, I, I didn't see myself uh, in that area. Uh, and then I ended up uh, being a, a disc jockey at WOLF and WNDR, and that was great experience, and I loved it. Uh, I was a rock and roll disc jockey. And then I also got a job uh, on WFBL doing uh, Syracuse Chiefs baseball one year. And that was a great opportunity. I, th I did one of two innings. And uh, it, it was just so many opportunities there for broadcasting. I mean, aside from WAER, which was, you know, a terrific setup at that time. And now. When I've come up to visit, I, I can't believe the facilities that they have at the Dick Clark Center, and you know, with television and and radio, it's probably better than most TV and radio stations around the country. It's so advanced. And the opportunities that I mean, you you rattled off so many great experiences as a student that Syracuse will give you that platform. You can. Put your try your chops on and go do uh, a Syracuse Chiefs game. You can do work with WAER calling the different sports events uh, on the campus for Syracuse University. Just how much do you credit that time as a student broadcaster with helping you to kind of cultivate and find your own voice? Oh, that was a key for me. Uh, just to be able to, you know, work through. You're working through your own mistakes. You're learning as you as you're doing it. You're also enjoying it. I mean, you're on the radio, and, you know, I, I, I know that, you know, people on campus are uh, listening because it was the, the top rock stations. Uh, the highlight for me was giving the, the uh, sports rundown, though, I must say, uh, <laughs> on those stations. But um, it, it was such a great opportunity, um, and I think with young sportscasters who I you know, talk to from time to time, and they have a question. I say you just got to do it. Though. You know, you can't just show up. And I know there are so many more uh, young people who are interested in being on the air uh, doing sports, but you have to do it. Be it off the television set at home, or somehow bring a tape recorder. It may sound ridiculous, but there are places and arenas where you can go with a tape recorder or work it out. So you're doing games. You can't just all of a sudden graduate, you know, college and say, okay, I'm going to be this. Uh, I want to do the weather on TV. I want to do it. You have to have done some form of it just to be prepared to do it. You know, sometimes you have to be creative in, in finding a way to do it. But um, uh, a city like Syracuse does have other opportunities aside from, you know, what the school has to offer. I want to go back to Marty Glickman, and it's hard to under 
state the important role that he has had for, I'm sure, so many broadcasters like yourself. And you mentioned how he gave you your first break and you had to, you know, break on through and, and develop your style, but he gave you a chance to get a job and, and, and help him out on some major platforms with the broadcasting work. What, what feedback did he give you? Well, Marty uh, was one of the early NBA broadcasters, and he actually set the terminology uh, of calling it, you know, on, on the court. Uh, he, he would always give me the example, uh, so-and-so is bringing the ball up. It's to the right sideline. It's to the top of the key. It's to the baseline. It's, you, it's like he would say, go into a room and try to describe everything you see. Uh, which is not easy to do, but he would listen to a broadcast and he would tell me, for example, so when I would say uh, a particular player is driving straight down the lane, uh, he said no one goes straight down the lane constantly. It's sometimes across the lane. In other words, you can get tied into your own language without really following the play-by-play at times. This is radio. TV is less play-by-play. You know, it's just really pointing things out, and it's more of a pullback and setting up the the color commentator, I feel. Um, and, I, I, and who you work with is important. I always uh, would delight in having someone with a sense of humor because I, I felt you had at times to to look at it with a little distorted view, you know. Um, but Marty would pick things up that no one else would. Uh, and it, uh, what he would tell me after he listened, not that he's listening to every broadcast, but he would listen quite a bit because he was busy. But uh, he would at times tell me that was that was really good. And just to hear that, you know, it was so encouraging Uh and other times he'd criticize. You know, he would say, "No, you, you should have done this, or you should have done that." Uh, but not, you know, not constantly. But it was really good to know that he's out there listening. And as you say, he did it with other because I think he did teach for a while at Fordham University, which has also produced, you know, a, a pretty decent share of, of really good broadcasters. So he, you know, he, his presence was felt there too. What I've always enjoyed, Marv, when listening to your, your broadcast from a humble fan's perspective is you would often let a game breathe. You know, you wouldn't talk over a big moment. You would take time to, to pause in between your, your words to have the impact where the listener or the viewer could really let that moment kind of sink in. Who taught you that strategy of, of broadcasting to let the moments breathe? Yeah, I think that's important, particularly on on TV. You know, radio, you can do that, uh, maybe a big moment at the end of the game, a big shot. Uh, someone hits a shot or in football, you know, touchdown, and the crowd goes crazy. Uh, I always felt that was important, uh, more so in, in television where you have to lay out uh, as often as possible, particularly down the stretch when it's a close game. Uh, it, it really can be captured by just a couple of words. You may have identified a player. Uh, you might say, you know, uh, the type of shot he's taking. But you got to feel it. And uh, I know Marty was big on that. Uh, but so I, I always was, too. I, I think sometimes people try to scream over the crowd, and uh, that's not good. 
you want to let you want to hear the crowd. I mean, that's that's very important. And uh, I, I think some people don't understand that. I'll listen to games, and you know, you'll hear that once in a while, and you listen to you know uh, someone who really knows what they're doing, and they let the crowd play. During your career, you got to cover a plethora of sports, but you were known as the voice of the NBA, especially with the New York Knicks, and you mentioned Marty Glitzen's role with the Knicks. You actually were a ball boy growing up for the Knicks. That must have been a pretty surreal feeling to go from having been a ball boy with the Knicks to getting to actually call their games and be the broadcast voice. Yeah, that was, as a kid, that was a thrill uh, for me, but it's amazing how you can pick things up have an understanding of players and coaches because often, uh, like a Red Auerbach with the Celtics, he'd allow me to be in the uh, the locker room when he's talking to the players at halftime. Uh, and you just get more of a feel of, of of what's going on, you know, from their their perspective. So uh, aside from being a real kick for me to be, you know, sitting on the bench, and hearing uh, what the coaches were saying to the players, it, it was—it just gave me more, of, I think, of a perspective uh, of uh, of the game game itself. The, the craziest situation I ever had as a ball boy: Will Chamberlain was at the end of his career. I know I'm dating myself here, but he was in the locker room, and he was always a very gregarious guy. I loved to talk, uh, and he was. You know, he was kind of a, a very funny. People didn't realize it because this was not done publicly. But he asked me at halftime, you know, right before halftime on the bench, he said, when we uh, go into the locker room for halftime, can you run out to a stand and get me four hot dogs with mustard? <laughs> Which I did. <laughs> and, and we'll gobble it down. I mean, you don't think of a player eating any. These days, maybe it's an energy bar or something that would help. But here is this seven-foot-one, uh, you know, incredible scorer and a guy who played 48 minutes almost every game. I mean, there's one season where he played all the minutes except for eight minutes in an AD game schedule, which is incredible, you know. So, uh, you know, he's... He, doing the worst possible you can thing you can think of health wise and uh you know the players are looking at him staring at him he's he's gobbling he's very appreciative that I got him for him. but uh, <laughs> that's a but great anecdote four hot dogs sitting on the bench you know uh in the clubhouse that is so uh I'll never uh, that's something I'll never forget what was it about basketball that really appealed to you when it came to serving as a broadcaster? Well, I, I played a, a number of sports. I was, an, I would say, an average uh, or mediocre to average athlete, but I played a lot of sports. We played stickball, uh, stoopball. Uh, these are Brooklyn sports. Played a lot of baseball, uh, lots of basketball. I was like a gym rat, but spent a lot of time in the schoolyard, and uh, I could I had a fairly decent jump shot. Could not go left and needed screen for any shot I would take. Actually, uh, but one of the phrases that I 
I use uh, yes, you know, on a basket, a big basket, important basket, came from the schoolyard. A friend of mine, I was always very shy, but a friend of mine, there's always a kid who's calling the play-by-play as you're playing like three-on-three. And he would call the play-by-play, and someone would hit uh, a shot, and he'd go, yes. And he got this from, there was an official, a referee by the name of Sid Borgia, who was a very colorful, animated referee and in the NBA, uh, and a very good referee. He would go into all these uh, theatrics, and he would say yes, and it counts when somebody would score and would be fouled. So my friend would always give it a yes, you know, on on that type of situation. So I just happened to incorporate it in a game. It was a Knicks-Philadelphia game at Madison Square Garden. And I remember Dick Barnett, who was on the Knicks championship teams in the 70s, with this fallback baby jumper, was able to hit a, a corner shot, kind of an angle, which banked in, and I said yes. And it just happened to John. I, I realized people were repeating it back to me. Players were, too, uh, during practice. And every once in a while, I, I started using it, and it just happened to uh, to catch on from that. So that came that came directly from the schoolyard. We also played a lot of street hockey. Uh, that was hockey was a, a a big sport in in Brooklyn, but it was you know strictly on roller skates uh, with a puck that was uh, put together you know with uh, tape, uh, and uh, that was. I was always a big hockey fan. I, you know, I did the Rangers and uh, a lot of NHL playoff games for a long time. Also, what would you say if you had? To, I know it's, it's probably impossible to pick out, you know, one or two. But what are some of your favorite moments and favorite games that you got to be on the mic for when it came to broadcasting? Yeah, there, there have been so many, but I, I, I think doing the Dream Team in 1992, even though they were blowouts, they were like when they were in Barcelona <clears throat> and uh, I would be with some of the uh, some of the guys walking the streets, you know, at night uh, just to grab a bite to eat and they were like a rock, you know, it was like the Beatles were in town, you know, with Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Rick Barkley, you know, it was an incredible team. In fact, when they first played in uh, the Tournament of Americas, which is to qualify for the Olympics, it was a series of games in Portland that we did on NBC. The first time they walked out, I got the chills just looking at that group. Uh, As far as a team sport goes, that was the greatest group of athletes ever assembled. And, you know, they won almost every game in a route. There was one game, I guess, against, it might have been Croatia, where, you know, fairly close for a while, but there was no question about it. So that, I would say that there have been heavyweight title fights that I did, and, uh, you know, the Nick Championship in 69-70, that's a game where Willis Reed wasn't supposed to play, and he walked out at the last minute, they beat the Lakers, and, in game seven, that was a uh, you know major 
in New York, that is, you know, something that for that generation will never, never be forgotten. So I imagine the same could be said too for the the Rangers. I mean, calling in '94 the the cup clinching victory that snapped that decades long championship drought and and brought a hockey starved city the championship that must have been quite a surreal experience too for you. Yeah, no question. That was also uh, right up there, you know, uh, because I grew up as a Ranger fan as a kid, and you know, they, uh, particularly when it was a, I started when it was a six-team league, and it was usually the uh, Canadians or in later years the Boston Bruins or the Philadelphia Flyers. Even though the Rangers had some good teams later on, they just couldn't get by Boston, or, you know, with Bobby Orr or. Uh, the Flyers, who were very, very rugged team led by Bob Clark, you know, so they could get, could not get past them. Uh, the 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 other thrills dealt with Michael Jordan. The thrills in terms of broadcasting. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to, you know, be doing the games on NBC when Jordan had had his big years, which you know we've all seen in the in the documentaries that recently ran. But the one game that stands out to me was in the finals against Utah. That was the flu game where Michael was sick and had this extraordinary game despite the fact that every time out he's helped back to the bench by his teammates. He looked like he was going to collapse. But he still scored the winning bucket and he uh, also had a, a you know huge 30-plus points and, and looked like he was going to faint. Looked like he was going to keel over. That that's one I'll never forget. I love your the, and, and broadcasters in general have such great minds and recall ability to pick up something. I mean, you're talking about giving hot dogs to Wilt Chamberlain when you were a ball boy, and then you're recounting all of the great memories with the Dream Team being a broadcaster. And and it shows you've got such a sharp attention to detail. How would you prepare to call a game? Well, that's the one thing I really miss in terms of not, you know, not doing the games. I I, I really enjoyed uh, the preparation, uh, uh, particularly uh, more so for the national games because when I was doing either the Knicks or the Nets, since you see them, you know, every other day, uh, you're just preparing for the uh, the other team. But uh, that would be really reading first of all uh, one of our production assistants would get me, uh, email me the uh, in recent years, would email me all the articles from those teams from the previous five or six days. I thought that was really important because you don't want to go and do a broadcast where you get the idea that the fans may know as much as you or more than you, so you really have to you know, be up on it by reading as much as you can. And I would talk to siders who covered the teams, uh, I would make my own chart. I know some people, there, there. I guess there is a company that makes charts for announcers, but I felt I had to write it out because I would remember it better if I, you know, if I was writing it down. And then I'm watching so many, so that's part of the uh, preparation and these days, particularly uh, with uh, League Pass and with so many games on uh, regular television. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to follow. I, I would make sure that previous week that I watched the games 
of the teams that I was going to do. So uh, we also had the benefit because we're doing national games where the coach would spend time with us, you know, which is not something on a local basis unless you got, you know, friendly with a particular coach. So that was uh, extremely helpful uh, because we'd have, we'd probably spend more time than the writers would, you know, and you talk to players here or there, you know, but you, I felt you didn't get as much unless you were really friendly with somebody. It's more from the uh, coach or an assistant coach, but it's a combination of all those uh, factors. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we had a statistician with us at all times, so he would have information also that we might not be able to get along with the producer. Uh, but that was the fun of it. I, I, I always liked preparing for a game. Is there any sporting event that you never got a chance to, to broadcast that you really wish you could have gotten an opportunity? You know, the only one, and I did, aside from, you know, doing minor league baseball with the Syracuse Chiefs, and I did a few games early in my career at uh, NBC. Uh, I, I thought when I was much younger, I would have loved to have done a baseball, a major league team, loc- you know, on a local basis. I probably would have. But that changed because I became more involved with basketball and hockey. So I think I'm satisfied. You know, I, uh, that, that changed for my, I was such a big Dodger fan and, uh, I went to so many games in Brooklyn, and then uh, you know I go to Mets and, and Yankees, and I, I still do. I still watch a lot of baseball. So uh, that might have been, but it's a long season. It's even the, when I did the Chiefs, and I couldn't believe here I'm doing it. It, it was Triple A, so they had a lot of players who were either going to the major leagues or had been in the major leagues and were going the other way. Uh, it, it's a very long season. And if the team is not playing well, it's particularly long. Uh, at an early age, I probably would have liked to have been able to combine that, but I think it's impossible to combine baseball with the winter sports if you're doing it on a regular basis. Well, Marv, you've had such a, a decorated Hall of Fame career. I know you're in the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame, the WAER Hall of Fame, and your, your voice has been iconic for generations of, of sports fans, not only in New York City, but across the country. I know that it's, it's been a pleasure having you on the, the podcast to get to, to tell your story. Can you give us a little tease as to what might be coming up? You mentioned there's some projects you're still working on. You're not fully retired. What might be coming on down the pike for you? Well, the only thing I can say, one is um, something I can't say, but probably will happen uh, within a few weeks, but the other is a, uh, uh, a documentary in which I'd be executive producer and also would be the uh, announcement. I can't, I can't say the subject. Marv, this has been an eye-opening and enlightening experience. Uh, pleased to have you on. Your story has been phenomenal. We wish you nothing but the best of health and the best of luck uh, with your future endeavors, and, and thank you for, for coming on today. John, thank you. Thank you very much. Same, same to you, and I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. <laughs>